Hello, I'm Ariana Dunham, video editor and podcast producer at The Hatchet. This is Getting to the Bottom of It, a weekly podcast covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and DC. Our news editors, Leah Potter and Meredith Roten, are unable to record this week, so I'll be filling in for them. I'm here with senior news editor Kayla Harris, and she's here to talk about new Title IX policies. Yeah, um, kind of. So these new Title IX policies aren't officially instituted yet. They will be approved by the Board of Trustees on Friday. So everything we're talking about here is kind of in limbo until the final version is presented to the Board of Trustees. But yeah, there were two new Title IX policies, two major Title IX policy updates that were announced at the Faculty Senate meeting on Friday. What were these policies saying? Yeah, so there were two main changes. The first one is that the university changed its investigation process. So instead of having a six-person hearing board hearing all of the sexual assault and sexual misconduct cases um, and deciding them, they will have a single investigator. So previously, this board was made up of three student volunteers and three staff, like faculty members. And now it will just be a single investigator and the investigator could be a university official, it could be someone from outside the university, anyone really with a that the university appoints who has a legal background, who can assess the case, who can conduct the investigation, collect evidence, etc. So that's one of the major changes. And the second update is that faculty are now required to report every instance of harassment that they see to the Title IX office. So previously, the, the university had basically mandated reporters, so that these were like confidential resources, that sort of thing, where if students went and said, you know, like, I'm a victim of sexual assault, they go to these people and they're mandated to report it to the Title IX office. Previously, not all faculty fell under this umbrella. Under the new policy, faculty are mandated to do this. So if students come in and even just say passingly, like, listen, like, I... I'm just kind of struggling right now with this assignment or something because this thing happened to me. Faculty are then now required to report that to the Title IX office. And last episode on the podcast, we talked about a lawsuit against the university from alumna Anika Rehan. Is this at all related to that lawsuit? Uh, No, actually, this is the direct result of the Cozen O'Connor review. So the Cozen O'Connor review, that happened last summer. This is an outside law firm that's based in Philadelphia, and the university brought on these outside legal experts to reevaluate its um, Title IX policies. Now, that review came after Anika Rehan, who at the time was a senior. She basically said the university mishandled her sexual assault case. The university's Title IX policies were under fire as a result of her case and as a result of her activism. And so after this, the university announced a series of reviews and whatnot, and they said, they would internally review their own policies, but then in July they announced that they were bringing on Cozen O'Connor. So the Cozen O'Connor review wrapped up recently in the last couple weeks, and these policies were the result of Cozen O'Connor's recommendations, and um, what officials were saying was basically this puts us in line with peer institutions and other universities who have like different Title IX practices. So you said these still need to be approved. What's that process like? Do you think it's likely that they will get approved? Oh, for sure. So these conversations have been happening for a very long time, so this is these policies that were presented on Friday are very recent, very up-to-date. Some last-minute things might change, like dates and whatnot, but Forrest Maltzman, the provost, was basically saying at the faculty senate meeting that there's a, quote, reasonable chance that it'll be approved. He later said that it's very likely, so there might be a few small things tweaked, but the, the general like gist of these updates won't change, and uh, they'll probably be approved by the Board of Trustees on Friday. 
How did the Faculty Senate react to these policies? So many members of the Faculty Senate were seeing this policy for the first time on Friday or for the first time sometime last week. And basically the university went to them and said, this is what we are doing. We're presenting this to the Board of Trustees. And a lot of the faculty felt like they weren't really included in this drafting process. So at the Faculty Senate meeting, several faculty members and several professors were criticizing the university and criticizing officials for not including them in that process. Several professors raised concerns that, you know, even if a student came to them and just came to them as a confidant and really didn't want to go to the Title IX office, that they would be required to mandate that. And so they were basically saying that, you know, any conversation at their in their office hours or whatever has to be prefaced with, I'm a mandated reporter, so just be wary of that when whatever you're about to tell me when you say that. So a lot of the faculty were very confused, but University President Thomas LeBlanc talked for a bit about this at the faculty senate meeting, and he said, you know, I share your frustrations. I understand this was kind of rushed through. I wouldn't like to replicate this again, um, but this was kind of the timeline that happened with the Cozen O'Connor review. Here's University President Thomas LeBlanc talking about why it would be better to go with the new policy rather than keep the old one. How do we handle cases next year? Do we take faculty before panels made up of students and staff? Do we have essentially untrained but well-meaning individuals doing the investigation? Do we have no decent appeal rights to an outside entity who's actually trained in this? I mean, there's a lot of questions that our current policy raises, and it's a judgment call as to we're better off adopting a policy that has some warts to it but they're not the kinds of warts that we have proven over time create horrible effects on our campus, as is the case of the older policies like the one we have now. And so the consensus that almost everyone in the room came to was that, you know, this wasn't the best process that it could have been, but this policy that's being proposed is better than the one that the university has currently. And so the consensus was kind of like, let's go with the new policy. Not really that, you know, faculty would have had like a vote in it or anything like that, but that was the general consensus. And several faculty members asked the president and other members in the room to commit to reviews of the policy next year and in the years following so that faculty could fully vet the policy and then give some feedback on that. Thanks, Kayla, for talking about this. Be sure to keep us updated. Yeah, definitely. We'll do. Thanks. Metro editor Danny Grace and blog editor Parth Kotak are here to talk about undergraduate research at GW. We're here to talk about student researchers on campus and how some of them in the social science area said that they feel secondary to those researching STEM topics. Parth and I interviewed about 14 students on campus, most of them from social science areas, but also some STEM researchers. And I think the general consensus was that a lot of people feel that there's often a disparity in funding between different research areas. So one of those reasons that funding disparity exists is because STEM researchers in many cases have to use large equipment, large expensive equipment, but social science researchers point out that they also have to travel around the district and travel to conferences to present their research. So there are opportunities where they could receive funding to put them on par with their STEM colleagues. One junior I interviewed, Sarah Espinel, who completed research on the effects of sexually explicit internet materials on different populations, said that she was really surprised when she received a Luther Rice Scholarship, which is a grant for undergraduate students conducting research, because she said that everybody was telling her, oh, only STEM people would get this, or that it's very rare for humanities or social sciences people to receive them. The university's vice president for research, Leo Chalupa, said that there are stark disparities in funding, but that can be attributed to funding from external donors as opposed to the way that the university actually handles that funding. For example, the budget for allocating grants to STEM researchers from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, 
or the National Science Foundation is a lot larger than the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. So that can contribute to some of the disparities in funding. Yeah, Chalupa said that often the STEM research funding comes in by the billions, whereas humanities and arts funding only comes in in millions of dollars. But still, he he emphasized that the university tries to encourage research in all fields, so he pointed to the University Facilitating Fund and the Humanities Facilitating Fund, both of which are major sources of faculty research funding. And he pointed out that they're going to support 15 research projects in STEM and 16 projects in the humanities and social sciences next year. Though students voice their concerns that social sciences often take a back seat to STEM researchers on campus, some students say that there could be a shift in the next 10 to 20 years because there is a nationwide lack of professionals in social sciences. Managing editor and former sports editor Matt Cullen is here with current sports editor Barbara Alberts, and they're going to talk about how GW sports teams have performed this past spring season. Hey, Barbara. Hey, Matt. So as graduation comes closer and the spring season winds down, a bunch of GW's teams have been ending their seasons and playing in A-10 tournaments. How have they been doing? Uh, Yeah, so softball most recently ended their season in the A-10 championship. A little bit of background, the top six teams for softball move on to the A-10 tournament. GW, despite having their best regular season record ever, barely made it into the tournament as the number six seed. They won their first game against Dayton 2-1 after sophomore pinch hitter Faith Weber came in in her first at-bat and hit a home run to give them the go-ahead run. In their second game, they were swept by Fordham 8-0 and couldn't generate any momentum at the plate and had a very hard time hitting. In their elimination game, they faced Dayton again, and this time they lost by one run. 4-3 to three after tying it in the sixth inning. Did any other teams recently play in A-10 tournaments? Yeah, so a few other spring sports also finished up their seasons. Men's tennis bowed out of the A-10 tournament in April in the quarterfinal round, losing to Richmond 4-2. to two. Previously, the program has won the A-10 tournament in 2016, 15, 14, 12, and 11. And this is the second year in a row that the team hasn't made it to the tournament finals. This is also the second year that they've been playing under head coach David McPherson, who this season started off the team with a pretty tough non-conference slate, having them play against really top-notch teams in order to prepare them for conference play, where they went 4-2. and two but they were just not able to get past that first round of the A-10 tournament. So on the women's side, they actually entered into the A-10 tournament as the number two seed, which is the highest ranking they've had heading into the tournament as a program. They were coming off their best regular season conference record in program history. They went 6-1 and one against other A-10 teams. In the quarterfinal round of the tournament, they swept Dayton 4-0, but lost to Massachusetts in the second round 4-2. Last year, they went 3-3 in conference play, so it was definitely an improvement this year in their regular season. Golf also recently competed in their conference tournament. They came in eighth, right? Golf did finish in eighth place this year at the A-10 tournament. They finished fourth last year, so it was a little bit of a, a drop in their performance from last year. They returned six of their members from last year's roster, including junior Logan Lowe, who was named A-10 Golfer of the Year for his performance, including two tournament wins. Lacrosse also finished their season last month. I know they were able to get off to a hot start, winning their first couple games, but how did they end the season? You know, they had their best start of the season in program history. They 
you know, won their first two games in a row, which was a record for them. They ended up kind of skidding a little bit in A-10 play. They lost their last five games in a row. And in like softball and lacrosse, only the top six teams in the conference move on to the conference tournament. So this is the uh, the fifth year in a row that lacrosse has missed out on that tournament this year, despite having the program's fifth winning record. Aside from those programs, there's also a few teams that are still playing. Is there anything that we should be looking forward to? Yeah. So sailing has actually had a very successful season this year. They're not in the A-10, but they did qualify for three intercollegiate sailing association national championships. They qualified for the co-ed nationals, the team racing nationals, as well as the women's national championships, which is the first time in program history that they've sent all three teams to a nationals competition. So they'll be competing later on in May. Track and field has had a pretty successful regular season and postseason this spring. On the men's side, they captured three gold medals at the A-10 championship for the first time in program history. So two runners, a senior Carter Day and graduate student Matt Lang, are actually the first runners in track and field history to qualify for an NCAA competition this year. Both runners qualified in the 3,000-meter steeplechase event, and both runners have never run in that event's before this year. So it's been a pretty cool thing to watch and they're both very excited to be making their first appearances at an NCAA competition, especially given it's their last year to compete at the collegiate level. Also, I know baseball is just about to finish up its season as well and the A-10 tournament is being hosted at GW this year. So are they thinking that they'll be able to get in or are they on the cusp? So heading into its last few conference series of the regular season, baseball has been struggling to kind of connect at bats and have fallen in the last couple games from second place in the conference to hovering between sixth and seventh place. Their next few games are crucial for them to win because only the top six teams in the conference move on to postseason play at the A-10 championship. If baseball misses out on qualifying for the uh, tournament, it will be the first time in three years that they have not made a postseason appearance. Well... Thanks for joining us, Barbara, and filling us in on how all the spring teams are finishing up their seasons. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Matt. Thanks for having me. This week, we covered our commencement guide, and I'm here with our contributing culture editor, Catherine Avugazala, to talk about the class of 2018's fashion trends when they were 5, 10, and 15. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing today? I'm great, Matt. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, but let's get into it. So you actually wrote this story. So we talked about 1996, which actually is the year that I'm born, believe it or not. But you talked about how a friends was a thing. And so did you see that, that people were picking up on some of the trends from TV? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm rewatching Friends right now. And seeing Rachel's clothing, that really had an impact on 1996 fashion, especially the red plaid skirts she would wear and the dresses Mm. and, you know, different types of heels and boots, especially the Rachel haircut. That was a big thing. But going into 2001, The Sims came out. The Xbox came out. And the first Harry Potter movie. The first Harry Potter movie, for crying out loud. And also Justin and Brittany came out as a couple in that all-denim ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yes. Literally changed style as we know it. But you said in your article that um, there was a lot of skate culture. Could you elaborate? Well, in 1996, you had a lot of, you know, TV-influencing fashion, 
And so in 2001, it was more from music and things like that. So you had more rap, you had more of that alternative rock coming out. So you had a lot of people dressing either like rappers or they were wearing more denim, kind of the preface to scene and emo kids. Sure. Okay, yeah. So in 2011, these people were just starting high school, probably. What kind of styles were arriving in this year? For girls, you either had the boho look, which was all about maxi dresses and really thin material. And then you had the country club style where everyone had the same exact riding boots that were brown, usually from Tory Burch. And they wore a light blue top half the time with jeggings and most girls burn their hair with flat irons. And on the flip side, you had guys dressing like hipsters with extremely thin cardigans and fedoras. And that's just a disaster. You know, yeah. Well, thanks, Catherine, for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Broughton and features culture editor Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen, video editor Ariana Dunham, and contributing photo editor Ethan Stoller. Music was provided by Olk Studios. Special thanks to Barbara Alberts, Catherine Abu Danny Grace, Parth Kotak, and Kayla Harris for joining us. See you next week.